Softly Spoken is an introvert's guide to thinking out loud about identity, meaning, and the moments that make us who we are. In our different ways, we all reach points in our life where we have to let go of who we were in order to embrace who we are and who we're becoming. A mix of stories and interviews, Softly Spoken is a podcast that takes a deep dive into the hidden moments that shape us. It's an invitation for you to consider the version of you you are creating right now. What are you learning about yourself in the process? My name is Stefan, and I'm your host and introvert-in-chief. Today's guest is the wonderful Anna Hemans. Anna is a therapist in Calgary, Canada, and a former nurse practitioner who grew up in England. Anna is a daughter, a sister, a social worker. Those are just some of her identities that I know of. Anna, welcome to Softly Spoken. I am delighted to be here, Steph. I've been really looking forward to this. I'm curious around in your family if you had a particular role or identity that you played out in in your family system. And I think it's only when you look back on your childhood that you can really see what, you know, what your identity was. And there's a lot of different parts that play into it. So first of all, around the gender within my family, I'm from an Eastern European family. So the role of the female, there there was lots of kind of manners around that. So things like the guys always got bigger plates than the women. The oldest man at the table had to start eating first before everybody else could start eating. If I needed to use the washroom, I would say, excuse me, and I would stand up and all the men on on the table would stand up for me to use the washroom. The men, yep, the men didn't cook. They weren't in the kitchen. That was very much the women's place. The men would be sat separately and the very kind of segregated roles based on gender, which I never even thought about before. Um, Women did the ironing, right? Um, Men sat down and, and they did the financials. There were very separate roles based on gender. So that's one part of identity that I've recognized as an adult, myself in relationships. I give my boyfriend more food than I do when I'm serving out the dinner. And I'm like, why, Anna? Why do you do that? It's like, You what? come by it honestly um, like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's kind of one thing that stands out. And the other thing as well is I was a bright kid. And I think that was always kind of something I was very aware of was about my intelligence and around good things were expected of me because I was intelligent. And that goes into all kinds of areas like career and then relationship. You said Eastern European. I mean, I know you came from the UK, but... I come from the UK. My um, grandfather was German, well, Romanian, but German and spoke German and settled in Germany. And so as a young child, I would go over to Germany three or four times a year My mom lived over in Germany for a period of time. We have very close connections with our German family, and we carried a lot of those traditions forward. And when did you start to question those gender roles? Yeah, I I don't even know. I think it's just been in, in the relationships that I've had as an adult where I'm starting to see where that comes into play. And I'm still seeing it now. I'm 30. How old am I? I'm, I'm 38. And... I clear up automatically after my boyfriend. Why? Why do I fold his shirts? 
right? Why do I feel? And then he's like, no, Anna, I'll do that. And, and, and I, but I automatically take that role because that's the role that's kind of been placed upon me. And mm. um, my boyfriend is a chef, but I still feel the need to provide the food. It's, it, yeah. So I think this is something that I'm just recognizing now. I don't think that the women in my family were submissive to men in terms of personality wise we have very spirited discussions as and, and so it wasn't like in that role it was more kind of the household kind of tasks the other piece you talked about was around intelligence and education and you know my family is from south africa and, and that was something that i certainly grew up with there was a lot of pressure to perform how was that enforced or reinforced in your family where i grew up in england when you were in your six at school you sat an exam if you passed the exam so for high school which we start in year seven you would go to one school if you failed that exam you would go to another school the quality of those two different schools was very very striking so if you passed the exam you went to a really high grammar school where a lot of people that i went to school with went to oxford and cambridge i did things like greek and latin if you failed the exam and you went to the comprehensive school the quality of education was a lot less. There was more things like bullying in a life with socioeconomic status or poverty. And people who went to that school weren't expected to go on to further education in university. That certainly locks people into a certain path very early in life. It really does. So my brother is five years older than I am. And I believe my brother probably has something like around ADD or ADHD. But again, it wasn't really picked up then. Nothing relevant now, but basically failed that exam. It was also summer and you have what's called itchy heat, which is like hives all over your body where you itch, but he still had to sit the exam and he failed it. So he went to this comprehensive school and that's how I really saw the difference. Right from the beginning, it was put on me that I went to this really good school and it was emphasized to me about how bright I was and how, you know, Anna, did you know you used to read the yellow pages when you were a child because you read everything else in the house? So it was always this awareness that I had and how your brother doesn't have that. What was that like for you? I was in an excellent school that I didn't recognize until I was older and could see how that did give me more opportunities. Yeah. And I think that pressure, you internalize it. And so you put the pressure on yourself. You know, I think that was the biggest part is always trying to do really well. And my mom was was definitely supportive and she didn't really make it hard for me and, and like put me under, if you don't do this, then that'll happen. There wasn't anything like that. She was always just try your best, Anna, try your best. But inside, I knew. I was once told that I, I'm very intelligent, but I have no common sense. What an insult. <laughs> well, I know, but that's kind of sat with me. And I feel a way of justifying my intelligence by being like, well, yeah, I am bright, but you know, I don't have any common sense. <laughs> okay, so you went to an excellent school. You, you were seen as gifted or intelligent. What did you dream of becoming? Did you dream of becoming a therapist? Um, no. So I dreamed of becoming a doctor, but I really struggled with math. So I did not get good enough predicted grades to go into medical school because of my math. So instead, I decided to do a year of microbiology and then transfer into medical school because you can do that when you start off the university. You start at one degree and then you can transfer into med school and do like a shorter course at med school. But again, I really wasn't very good at math. And there was quite a lot of math in microbiology. And so I decided to become a nurse like my mom instead. I mean, were you happy with that decision or was that a blow to your confidence? I think I was happy with that decision. I, I had a friend who was 
she was pretty sick and I saw her in hospital and I saw the role of nurses. And before I'd had this stigma about, oh my God, my mum's a nurse. I don't want to be like my mum. I can't imagine anything worse. But then I saw nurses in a different role. And so, and the other thing was about financially, I knew that if I did the nursing degree, I would have a job. In England, we do not have the struggles that we have here in Calgary around AHS and not being very many positions. In England, you will get a job as an RN the minute that you qualify. There was that security around, I will get a job. How long were you a nurse for? Uh, 11 years, 12 years. Wow. Yeah. So I started off life in plastic surgery with a goal of doing not cosmetic plastic surgery, but reconstructive um, plastic surgery and, and plastic surgery related to gender. But basically, they transferred me into orthopedics, which I didn't like. So then I ended up in renal medicine. I became a specialist in kidney transplants and teenagers. So I did that for 10 years. And then after the accident, I became a nurse practitioner in the community. And I loved it, loved every minute. At that point, I was really kind of high flying in my career. It's a bit of an irony, really. So I created this role that was really counseling, but as a nurse, as a registered nurse. So it was working with teenagers with kidney disease. And I would run my own clinic with one of the consultants on a Wednesday. And I would see children from all over the province that would travel to come to this clinic, a young person's clinic. And I was talking, I went and spoke in the Houses of Parliament, and I was all geared changing this nationally about how we manage young people who aren't children and they're not adults. And the healthcare sector wasn't really working with that specific age group. I loved it, Stefan. I'd just been doing it for a year, and I could see where this was going to go, and I was so excited. And around that, I had also come to Canada on vacation, and um, my husband and I were talking about moving to Canada as a possibility as well, because I could get residency here. We hadn't decided. We'd approached a company about it, and it was there in the background as an idea. So my clinic had finished on a Wednesday with a consultant, and um, I was talking to my mom on the phone as I walked home from the clinic, and I went to cross a road. Um, and you do that in England, you press for the light and you get the walk sign. We don't know exactly what happened. We think that I waited until the lights were amber instead of red. And I'm sure that I looked both ways and stepped out across the crossing because, you know, I look both ways when I cross a road. And what we think happened is somebody pulled out of a um, side road that I didn't even know was there and sped up to get through the lights before they hit red and hit me in the process, something like that. Oh, my goodness. So I bounced about 10 feet off the windscreen um, and I had a fractured skull and a fractured pelvis and a fractured knee. Luckily, at the traffic lights, one of the people that was in the car was an off-duty policeman. And so as soon as this happened, straight away, he made sure that the apprehender didn't leave, called 911. I was a two-minute drive to the ambulance, so I was picked up very, very quickly and taken into, into hospital. And I was in the neurointensive care unit and then an inpatient for about a month. And I had what was, I had lots of different bruising and bleeds in my brain, and it was described as a moderately severe brain injury. When did it occur to you that this was a life-changing event? Yeah, I think that's a really important question, Stefan. It's something I feel very passionately about because as a nurse, I thought that a brain was like a bone. Six to eight weeks and you'll heal it. I almost self-discharged from, well, I did self-discharge from hospital because I didn't really understand the severity of my injury. You know, I was a nightmare patient anyway, just like questioning them. Do you know I'm a renal specialist nurse? Can you tell me what my blood results? I was obviously a nightmare. And I don't think I realized the full effects of my injury until after about, I think it's probably when I returned to work. I returned to work earlier than I should have done. And so I think I went back to work after I've been off for 10 months, I think. It was then 
did it really hit me about how severe my brain injury was. Did the medical people, they told you it was how ser serious it was or did you really understand? So I've lost about three months of memory after the accident. Like I really don't remember very much. And my memory of the first year is very sketchy. I don't know the conversations they had with me about the severity of it. I was seeing a psychologist and also an occupational therapist who's like somebody that helps you to return to work. And I'm sure those discussions were had. Whether I took them on, that's something different, right? I think it's very hard to really grasp, and I'm still working on this now, about grasping how this has changed my identity and how this has changed my day-to-day -day functioning. On that note, how did it change your identity? I think one of the most important things, and again, this is me looking back at the time, if you had have asked me that question, I don't know what I would have said. It really put me into that victim mentality. My husband at the time got told, you know, you should apply for compensation for Anna. Somebody hit her and you should apply for compensation. And so he put that application in with a no win, no fee type lawyer. Basically, I got the insurance a week before I moved to Canada in 2017. So the accident was 2012. It took five years to get that settlement. Which means that for five years, I was constantly being reevaluated. I was constantly being like reminded of my injury. I was constantly being told, you know, you'll never be able to return to work full time. You'll never be able to retrain. Your income is always going to be lower than what it is now. You're going to have dementia and Alzheimer's at an early age. Kind of all those worst case scenarios you have to be aware of because it's what your lawyer is telling the insurance company to get you a fair settlement. They make it sound as bad as they can. That's it. They do. And if you take that on, right, and, and things like, oh, you know, the insurance company, you're probably followed by a private detective so that they can check that you are actually telling the truth and constantly having emails and you're constantly meeting with the lawyer. And, and I think that keeps going, this idea of there's something wrong with me. I'm not right. I'm broken. And the biggest piece in the identity was about my confidence. And this is the change that everybody noticed is I went from being this super confident on top of the world. You want to ask me a question, I can answer it. You know, I really confident person, confident in how I dressed, feeling like an attractive woman, to all of a sudden almost feeling like a child. I'm not the person that I used to be. I'm really caught up in that worst case scenario. And, and even the way I dressed back then was very different too. I think this is true for a lot of different injuries, but particularly with brain injuries, this is one of the most common issues is that really does change part of who you are. It changes how you think. It changes your tasks that you can do every day. It can change your emotions and it can actually change your personality. That really did cause this huge shift that I'm still working through now. It sounds like a profound shift. What kept you going during that time? I've always risen to challenges. When somebody tells me you can't do something, even then I was like, no, I'm going to. I was very, very fortunate, Stefan, in how my improvement that I've had, like this was unpredicted about how much I've improved. And the majority of a brain injury recovery happens in the first couple of years. And I think that's what kept me going is things that I couldn't do. I found I could do a little bit easier. I could see change. It wasn't static. But it certainly sounds like it wasn't an easy or a fast process. When you think back on it now, what did you learn from that? So much. You know, I, something that I'm really interested in as a therapist is post-traumatic growth. And the reason I'm really interested in it is because that summarizes me. 
is about where I am now is very different, but I'm almost grateful of everything that happened because it's got me to where I am. I am determined. I am bullheaded. I'm strong. When something happens and you can't see a way out, there is a way out. Those mantras or whatever, I'm stronger than I think I am. I really am. I'm proud of myself for not accepting I'll never do things, but instead being able to say, no, I will. What are you most grateful for? I'm grateful. Oh gosh, Stefan, there's so much. I'm trying to pick like, what am I most grateful for? I'm most grateful for the the friends who I call my family that I have around me. They give me that space to be myself and to be vulnerable. Well, let's end it there. Thank you for doing this. I learn through other people's stories. I think that's one of the things I love about our job is I get to hear and be inspired by other people's stories. And this was an honor for me to be able to share mine. Well, thank you so much. If you enjoyed listening to this episode and you'd like to help support us, please share it with others, post it on social media, or leave us a rating or review. Thanks again, and see you next time.